Amen. I think we can all echo that sentiment. Let's pray. Father, the, the longer we live on this earth, the older we get, the more we realize that it truly is not home. Though we live here physically, we don't belong here. Our hearts, our souls, our minds turn to our home with You. You have filled us with a longing for, for more than this world can offer. And we're so grateful that as Your children, ransomed and redeemed by the blood of Your Son, our place is with You. Visit with us now, Lord. Let our hearts turn to Your Word. Give us, give us a practical message that we can take with us, Father, as we journey on and await that glorious day when You call us home. In the precious name of Your Son, we pray. Amen. I want to share with you a great historical quote. Our nation, this most powerful wealthy and dominant people on the face of planet Earth shall shine on for millennia to come. These were the words spoken by Pericles, the ruler during the golden age of ancient Greece as he was giving a speech in 398 B.C. The next year when Greece was at its greatest peak as a world power, he proclaimed, as we are a democracy, we can never fail. The people's will is what makes us strong. And we will live on forever. Now, within a year, he was dead. And four years later, his nation was gone, completely broke, battered, and ravaged. Succeeding the Greeks, the, the Roman Empire became one of the greatest empires in the history of our planet. The Roman Empire had nearly a 500-year run as the world's greatest superpower stretched from the moors of Scotland out to the Tigris and Euphrates rivers and from the North Seas of Germany to the sands of the Sahara. If you were going to take a trip through the Roman Empire in 2nd century AD, you would start off in the United Kingdom, cross over to Belgium and Holland through Germany and France, on down to Switzerland and Austria, to Hungary and Romania and Bulgaria, down through what was Yugoslavia and to Greece, and then on to Turkey, through Syria, Lebanon, into Iraq, Jordan, Israel, Egypt. We would pass on into Libya, into Tunisia, Algeria, up into Morocco, and then on up into Spain. All of that was the Roman Empire. And, and all of it was guarded by one of the greatest, most cost-efficient armies in history. 360,000 Roman soldiers guarded this vast terrain. The empire was connected by a superb network of magnificent Roman roads and aqueducts that gave the ordinary Roman citizen a larger supply of fresh, pure drinking water that was more plentiful and hygienic than an inhabitant of Chicago or Paris had in the 1920s. And for all of this, the ordinary Roman worked only two days a year to pay his taxes because the emperors understood that with money left in the hands of individuals, it would be invested. Its architecture was groundbreaking. Its educational system was unparalleled. Its science became reference material even through 15th century Europe. Emperor Constantine of Rome was quoted as saying, Under our watch, 
We shall conquer and never fail. He proclaimed these words boldly, wonderfully, proudly, standing atop what you can now visit as the ruins of a once great empire. Another Roman emperor stood to tell the tale as well. He said, forever shall we live as a beacon of glory to the world. This was proclaimed by Emperor Romulus Augustus and the terrorist band named Vandals, from whom we get the word vandalism, which we still use today, ransacked Rome shortly thereafter and the world plummeted into the dark ages. Let's move on to more modern times. Napoleon, who ruled the mighty French empire of the the mid-1800s. We French, he said, are the most populous of Europe, the most wealthy, and possess an army that has brought us virtually the whole of the continent. Viva la France! Our great nation will prosper forever as the most powerful nation on earth. Well, they still make wonderful croissants. <laughs> About the last century, speaking of true world superpowers, the USSR stood in all its glory in 1989 when Premier Gorbachev said, we uphold a bold, long, storied tradition. Our nation controls much of Asia, half of Europe, and our sphere of influence and power is felt on every continent of the globe. A couple of years later, the USSR didn't exist at all. Each of these nations, each of these these empires, each one of these kingdoms was dominant, wealthy, powerful beyond imagination. At their respective peaks, we could never imagine their collapse or demise. Yet, sure enough, without fail, every kingdom fell. Whether from corruption within, competition from without, moral collapse, financial collapse, political unrest, whatever the case, every great kingdom of the world becomes history as time marches on. When you take time to study world history, it's amazing how much of it is the same story repeated over and over again in different eras. And as you study the great kingdoms, you're you're struck by the similarities. Similar goals, similar methods, similar strategies, and ironically, similar outcomes. Every kingdom in history will crumble. Every kingdom in history will fall, except for one, the kingdom of God. It's the very theme of the New Testament. The first sermon in the New Testament was given by John the Baptist. And he said in Matthew 3, 2, he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And the beginning of Jesus' ministry was characterized by preaching the same message. Matthew 4, 17, almost the identical words. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Over and over, it was the theme of his ministry. Luke 4.42 tells us, At daybreak, Jesus went out into a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And his ministry ended the same way. Acts 1.3, After his suffering... He presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. 
Paul continued the emphasis. He took up the torch. Acts 19.8 tells us Paul entered the synagogue and boldly spoke there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. James said in James 2.5, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? John spoke of it in the gospel and he concluded Revelation with this emphasis. Revelation 11.15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. There's a reason Scripture reminds us again and again and again about the kingdom of God. There's a reason it was at the forefront of Jesus' message to us. There's a reason it's brought to our attention over and over again. Why? Well, because as we're entrenched physically in the kingdom of the world, the kingdom in which we live and, and work and spend our days, it's so easy to lose sight of the spiritual kingdom of God, which will one day become the physical kingdom of God. And as believers, that's the kingdoms in which we are citizens. See, like this song reminded us, we're, we're not spiritual citizens of this world. We're tourists. We're pilgrims. We're, we're passing through. We belong to another kingdom, a greater kingdom, an eternal kingdom. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. Amen. And though we know this, what happens far too often is the lines get blurred. We lose sight of our true citizenship when we let this world creep into our hearts. We don't, we don't mean it sometimes. It's not often deliberate, but it's what happens. And what happens is that the world, its people, its heroes, its messages, its values, its principles, they begin to influence us. The more time we spend focused upon them. The lines blur and our hearts become divided. No, 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 not me. Yeah, it happens. You'll notice the pull when it comes time to stand for Christ or obey his principles that we begin to question. And pretty soon we're rationalizing sin that we never would have dreamed to justify when we were stronger in the Lord. You recognize the rationalizations. Hey, it's just one little misstep. It's just one little mistake, one one little party, one little white lie. And before we know it, we're in over our heads and we can't see a way out. We blur the lines when we begin to set down roots in this world. We take on its values. We take on its, its politically correct, socially acceptable values. Friend, you can't be a citizen of the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. There's no dual citizenship. Now, don't get me wrong. No one is more proud than I am to be an American citizen. But that's a physical citizenship. I do not subscribe to its social standards, to its morality. My country does not calibrate my moral compass. It doesn't set the standard for my life principles. Why? Because it's part of the kingdom of the world, whose aim is far different than the spiritual kingdom to which I belong. May we never become so numb to this world that we forget the clear differences between its kingdom and the kingdom of God. And I, I want to talk about this today. I want to talk about the differences between these two kingdoms. Differences that should be so clear in our minds that our hearts can never become divided. 
fact, they, they're not just slight differences. They're not just shades of the same. They're complete polar opposites. We're going to take a look at four very basic opposing differences between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. First difference, they have opposing kings. You know, a kingdom implies a king. There has to be someone in place who's the, the final word, the authority. There has to be a leader who, who sets the policy, sets the tone, provides the direction for the kingdom. Our king is Jesus. Take a look at John 18.36. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. It's His kingdom. Jesus is the King of God's kingdom. And what a King He is. Not only is He kind and compassionate and just and all-powerful, He's the only King in history who died to ransom His own and then rose again to the throne to spend His days interceding for His children. That's a King you would give your life to serve. That's a King worthy of your allegiance, your loyalty, and your love. And now turning to the kingdom of the world... Who is the king? Who's the ruling king? Well, there isn't one. You really say everyone does their own thing. Yeah, there's no global moral standard and, and sin and hatred run rampant. But that's the thing. It's, it's anarchy. Everyone does their own thing. There's no master plan. There's no one pulling the strings. Friend, you're so wrong. The kingdom of this world is not rampant anarchy without a ruler. It's ruled by Satan and it's a well-run, well-planned, highly deliberate and carefully constructed machine of moral destruction. May we never forget or take lightly who's in charge of this world. When Satan told Jesus, remember when he was tempting him, and he, he told him that he would give him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory over them if he would fall down and worship him. It's implied that he had such power and control over these kingdoms and their glory to deliver them into his hands. He's not trying to pull the wool over Jesus' eyes. He's not that stupid. He's speaking to the creator of the universe. Would he dare make a false claim to Jesus who would know immediately? Satan spoke in, in Luke 4, 6. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want. He wasn't making a false claim. He is the ruler of this world. Satan could have no power except what's been committed to him. Whatever power he has was only his because it, it was delivered to him. But the extent of his rule is clearly indicated when he's called the prince of this world in John 12, 31. The prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2, 2. In Corinthians 4, 4, he's called the God of this world. And what kind of king is the king of this world? Well, Jesus so aptly described him when speaking to those who would not listen to truth. In John 8.44, he said, You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Wow, may we never be so taken with this world that we forget that we're being swayed by lies. There's no happy ending when following the father of lies. Make no doubt about it. Behind every moral question mark, 
behind every beautiful distraction, behind every seed of doubt and distrust and anger in this world, someone is very deliberately pulling the strings. May we be always wise enough to see behind that curtain. These kingdoms have clearly opposing kings. That's our first difference. Second difference, they have opposing goals. In John 8.34, Jesus tells the unbelieving Pharisees, He says, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. He uses the analogy of a slave and his master to make the point that a slave obeys his master because he belongs to him. He has no choice. Slaves have no will of their own. They're literally in bondage to their masters. And when sin is our master, we're unable to resist it. The king of this world wants nothing more than to keep us enslaved to sin. And as long as we continue in our sin and continue being enslaved to sin, we continue being members of his kingdom. If we believe that God has provided the solution to the enslavement of sin through the blood of his son, if we accept this free offer of salvation, our chains are broken. That's a, that's a problem for Satan. He'll no longer have a hold on us. So the goal is to do whatever possible to prevent salvation by keeping us enslaved to sin. How does he do it? Brilliantly, subtly, effectively. While unbelief is often manifested by other religions, agnosticism, atheism, the far more prevalent, far more dangerous tactic is that of apathy. Comfort. I'm comfortable where I am. I'm comfortable in my sin. I'm just like the majority around me. I don't really care to change my lifestyle. I'm too busy. Too busy in my sin to step back and look at the bigger picture. That's the goal. Keep us distracted. Keep us surrounded by sin. Keep us numb to sin. Don't even feel bad about it or, or take the time to think about it. Everyone around us behaves the same way. We're just following the masses. Everyone's in the same boat. You want to fit in, don't you? Don't worry. Don't bother. Don't step back to look. Don't care about spiritual things. Apathy. The number one tracking story three years ago on usatoday.com was titled Losing My Religion. There was another article recently, same theme, it's even worse. In it, reporter Kathy Lynn Grossman reports 44% told the Baylor University Religion Survey they spend no time seeking eternal wisdom. 19% said it's useless to search for meaning in life. 46% told a survey by uh, Nashville-based Lifeway Research that they never wonder whether they will go to heaven. I don't think about it. 46%. 28% said, it's not a major priority in my life to find a deeper purpose. 18% scoffed that God has a plan or a purpose for everyone. And 6.3%, it's much higher today, turned up on Pewform's religious landscape survey as totally secular, unconnected to God or a higher power or any religious identity of any kind. They're willing to say religion is not important in lives today. And they're being termed the so what generation by some or apa-atheists, apathetic atheists. God, purpose, you don't need an opinion on those things to function, said Suhas Sridhar, 26, an engineer from Manhattan. 
If Satan can get us not to look at God's plan for salvation or not to even care about it and to be so busy in other things that we can stay enslaved to sin and in his hold, he wins. That's his goal. Jesus, on the other hand, came to break the bonds of sin and set us free from its enslavement. Galatians 5.1 says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. And do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. The Bible tells us that spiritually speaking, no one is free. In Romans 6, Paul explains that we are all slaves, whether we're slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. Those who are slaves to sin cannot free themselves from it. But once we are freed from the penalty and power of sin through the cross, we become a different kind of slave to righteousness. We pursue righteousness. And in that pursuit, we find complete peace and true freedom. By the power of Christ to overcome the power of sin, Romans 6.18 tells us, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Once we come to Christ in repentance and receive forgiveness for sin, we're empowered by the Holy Spirit who comes to live within us. It's by His power we're able to resist sin. We become slaves to righteousness, pursuers of righteousness. Our priorities shift. Our goals shift. Jesus' disciples belong to Him and, and want to do things that please Him. This means that we live in freedom from habitual sin. We can't do this on our own. We do this because Jesus has set us free from the slavery of sin and gives us the power of His Holy Spirit. And we're no longer under the penalty of death and separation from God. So the goals are very clear on each side. The kingdom of the world wants nothing more than for you to pursue sin, while the kingdom of God wants nothing less than for you to pursue righteousness. Always remember these opposing goals. Every temptation, every compromise, every harsh word, every angry thought has a specific goal to move you and keep you in sin in the kingdom of this world. Meanwhile, everything in the kingdom of God happens for the express purpose of moving you towards righteousness. Opposing kings, one. Two, opposing goals. Our third difference, opposing principles. When you're entrenched in the kingdom of the world, its principles become unmistakable. We see them around us. We live, we work here. And it's a kingdom marked by selfishness where your individual needs should matter more than anything else. It's a kingdom marked by disloyalty where loyalties shift with the circumstances, the times, the fads. In the end, its citizens really have no loyalties outside of their own interests. It's a kingdom marked by competitiveness, impatience, revenge, pettiness, lack of self-control, divisiveness. Get all you can as fast as you can. Step on anyone and everyone to get what you want. In short, any principle that gets you to its goal of perpetual sin is championed. Any principle that can tear down your moral fiber is encouraged. If I was to ask the citizens of this world's kingdom what its moral standards are, I would get as many answers as there are citizens. And that's music to its king's ears. Moral confusion due to lack of a moral standard is the guiding principle. Everyone follow what they believe. Live out your own convictions. Right? How's that working out for us? 
when tyrants and, and militants and terrorist organizations are performing genocide as a form of moral cleansing. Hey, they're just they're following their own moral compass. Yeah, they are. How's that working for us? Friend, when there's no moral standard, there's only chaos. George MacDonald once said, the one principle of hell is I am my own. The kingdom of God is the clear polar opposite of this. We have a moral standard so clearly defined for us and guiding principles that help us live towards this standard every day of our lives. What does scripture tell us about the principles of God's kingdom? We could spend a lifetime talking about them, about his principles, and we wouldn't cover them. The kingdom of God champions principles of righteousness, like the principles of waiting on God, patience before promise, loving one another, putting others before ourselves, looking at our own lives, not judging others, being content and thankful with what we have. Over and over again in scripture, we're taught Life-changing principles that grow us spiritually, that change us, that move us toward that goal of righteousness. And what do the world's principles affect in us? They do nothing but tear us down and corrupt us. They leave us empty. These exemplify the very definition of polar opposites. Let's always remember and be clear about the opposing principles and guidelines. Opposing kings... Opposing goals, opposing principles, and finally, our last point is opposing destinations. And friend, this one should be pretty clear. While citizens of the kingdom of God can look forward to an eternal future in heaven, citizens of the kingdom of this world find only eventual heartache, discontentment, restlessness, regret, a lack of fulfillment, and eventually an eternity in hell apart from God. Even here on earth, any happiness experienced from its citizens is short-lived. Well, why? Because it's, it's based on circumstances or things or experiences. These pass, these end. Those eventually leave us with this same emptiness in which they found us. Only Christ satisfies today and in eternity. Amen. Only living within the kingdom of God and for the kingdom of God gives us peace for today and eternal security for tomorrow. Always keep your destination in mind. Former Senator Dwight Morrow searched in vain to find his railroad ticket as he was on a train leaving New York City. I, I must find that ticket, he muttered. The conductor, who, who knew him, stood waiting beside him, said, don't worry about it, Mr. Morrow. We know you had a ticket. Just mail it to the railroad when you find it. No, 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 that's not, that's not what's troubling me, replied Morrow. I need to find it to know where I'm going. Friend, do you know where you're going? Do you know where your train ride ends? You should. It should be very clear to you where you're headed. Have you made plans for eternity? If you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, you know you have an eternity of peace and joy in heaven forever. And nothing can shake that. And nothing can take that away. And if you're not, well, isn't it time you changed citizenships? Long ago, in a kingdom far, far away, a rich king hired a fool to entertain him and, and make him laugh when he was sad. 
And he gave the fool a golden scepter and told him that when he met a greater fool than he, to pass the golden scepter along to that person. Well, years went by and one day the king grew very ill. And as he neared death, the king called for his fool, wanting to be made to laugh one last time. I'm going on a very long journey, said the king to the fool. Have you made preparations and arranged for accommodations at your destination? Asked the fool. No, answered the king. I've, I've been too busy and I didn't think I would be leaving so soon. The fool handed the king his golden scepter and said, Sire, you are a greater fool than me since you have made no plans for your long journey. Not making your plans, not making your choice means you've already chosen. Friend, the differences should be clear. They're polar opposites, opposing kings, opposing goals, principles, and opposing destinations. The choice should be clear. The kingdom's well documented in Scripture. There's no delayed response. There's no other choice. There's no third option. Eternity has but two options. The only question that remains then is to ask yourself, of which kingdom are you a citizen? The most troubling thing about being a citizen of this world's kingdom is that its attribute, its leader, its king, its goals, its method, its ultimate destination are very much concealed from its citizens. That's the great hidden agenda around us. You want a conspiracy theory? That's the greatest one ever. The ruler of this world seeks nothing but your eternal demise. How about you, friend? Are you a citizen of this world's kingdom? Have you thrown your lot in with the numbed masses blinded by the candy of this world? It's no different from sitting in the most comfortable most plush reclining seat on a gorgeous, shiny, sparkling new train headed off a cliff. Pay attention to your destination. Time is running out and a Savior extends His loving arms of forgiveness and love to you today. Take them. Reach out to Him and become a citizen of the greatest kingdom in all the universe and for all of time. And dear believers, dear citizen of God's kingdom, do you find yourself starting to set down roots here? you find yourself being pulled and lured by the trappings of this world? It's not innocent, friend. It's incredibly dangerous. It's not by chance. It's very calculated. Remember the differences. Remember what we talked about, these differences today. Remember who the king of this world's kingdom is. Remember what his goals are. And remember where his end will be. That's not a train you want to get on. And that's not a kingdom you want to pledge allegiance to. You are not its citizen. You belong to a far greater kingdom. You're only passing through here. You're only a tourist here. You were bought with the blood of Christ and you belong to the kingdom of God. So let's start living like it. Start living as an ambassador for his kingdom. Doesn't He deserve that allegiance from you? 
Hasn't He done enough to earn your loyalty and trust? Identify yourself as its citizen. Pledge your allegiance to its King. Live your life and choose your priorities with the Kingdom of God's goal in mind. Live by its principles and bask in the hope of the glorious future. It's a kingdom that will never fall with a king that will never fail you. That's where I want to be. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to be citizens in your kingdom. We're so grateful to have been ransomed by the blood of your Son. For those that haven't made that decision today, let this moment be their entrance into citizenship in your kingdom, Lord. And for all of us believers, help us to live lives worthy of that citizenship which you've purchased for us. Help us to hold on to nothing in this world so tightly, Lord, because we don't belong here. We're pilgrims and strangers only passing through. Give us your strength to live in light of that, Father, as we look forward to the glorious day when you call us home and we will see you face to face. With thankful hearts, we pray in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.